everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to our seminar on informal African trade, the world of food flows beneath the surface. My name is Julie Kurtz. I'm a research analyst in the Markets, Trades, and Institution Division at IFPRI. I am delighted to be honor, uh, moderating this session. So we are here to get today to discuss the important and all too invisible topic of informal agricultural trade. At some border crossings between African countries, customs controls account for most or all of the food and agricultural goods that flow between country borders. At other borders, formal trade statistics tell us next to nothing about the real quantity of goods crossing borders. Today, we're going to talk about that difference between what the formal trade data say and the reality on the ground. And while policy leaders, researchers, NGOs and the private sector need better information about this otherwise invisible food crossing borders. Today, we're also going to talk about the people, the informal traders crossing borders who can be equally invisible, as well as how that story is changing, thanks to the excellent work of agencies and individuals on the ground helping account for who and what is actually crossing inter-African borders. So based on the expertise of our presenters today, we can expect to learn a lot from this seminar. So thank you so much for joining us and for being a part of the conversation. Throughout the event, we encourage you to enter your questions on the event webpage, or you may ask your questions on Twitter using the hashtag AskIFPRI. It is my pleasure to introduce to you our first speaker, Patterson Brown, who is a senior trade advisor at the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security at the US um, Agency for International Development, or USAID. Patterson. Thanks, Julie. And good morning and good afternoon, everyone. As uh, Julie just noted, I'm Patterson Brown. I'm the senior trade advisor in USAID's Bureau for Resilience and Food Security based in Washington. We're pleased to be a part of the discussion today and to be able to showcase some of the work that we're helping to move forward with IFRI and other partners. From our perspective, the primary goal is that we want countries to have access to evidence to make the best decisions they can for the well being of their people, particularly the most vulnerable, and to protect and accelerate development progress. Trade is a key building block in reaching the system level transformation and sustainable growth that lowers poverty and hunger. So given this, a question for our work was, how can we address the need for data and evidence on the impact and role of informal trade and the role that those flows play? And once those informal trade data streams become more reliable and consistent, the picture does become clearer. Informal trade represents a significant or even majority of formal trade flows. We've brought together experts from the public and private sector, research entities and universities to create a shared vision and prioritize regional roadmap to target short run opportunities to get at the persistent problem of measuring informal trade flows. What can we do together now? By convening these partners and creating a set of shared objectives, solutions surfaced, including the route taken here and discussed uh, here today, whereby collaboration with private sector partners, local and regional technical organizations like AgriDev, like SILS, 
has led to new streams and methodologies for, methodologies for tracking informal trade flows within a couple of years time. And this work is owned by the organizations and entities in the West African region. In addition to bringing forward the new data and evidence valuable on its own, ECOWAS has decided to adopt the group's work into its statistical efforts. The added value here is that the work with regional organizations is now fanning out to the countries in the West African region. Also, looking continentally, African leaders had taken an unprecedented level of commitments, for example, through the African Continental Free Trade Area. We're supporting the African Union and continuing to move the AFCFTA forward and for countries as they work to maximize the benefits of more open trading regimes. The agreement has incredible promise in unlocking regional trade flows that will help to increase the affordability of safe and nutritious foods, improve the resilience of vulnerable communities, and for countries and, and regional markets to shocks. Above all, in lowering poverty and hunger. We believe women traders play an important role across the board and perhaps even more so when considering informal trade. They represent the majority or most times the large majority of informal traders. Women's livelihoods are disproportionately impacted given the centrality of informal cross-border trade for them. Also, there's the potential that men may and anecdotal evidence is suggesting that they are moving into informal trading at a greater rate due to restrictions on formal trade. And as a result, crowding out women traders. Women traders were vulnerable to violence and harassment even before COVID-19. And we've seen an exacerbation of gender-based violence during COVID. So Julie, let me end there and say again, thanks for the opportunity to participate today and looking forward to uh, discussion. Thanks. Thank you so much, Patterson, for introducing and setting the groundwork for this conversation. I will pass it now to our first primary speaker, uh, Fusini Trauer, who is a research fellow at IFPRI. Fusini. Thank you, Julie. So I'm going to give you a kind of a broad picture of a topic, and then the next speakers will go into more details. And uh, this presentation is based on a joint work with uh, Antoine Bouet. Next slide, please. So let's start with some definition. So what is ICBT? So by the way, by ICBT, we mean informal cross-border trade. As you may have guessed, there is no universal definition of ICBT, and there are a lot of confusions. Sometimes there is a confusion between the status of traders versus the status of trade flows. So here I'm showing two definitions. The first one is from UNCTAD, and the second one is from the African Development Bank. As you can see, the first one, the one from UNCTAD, is referring to the status of traders, of agents, the operators. While the second one, the one from the African Development Bank, is referring to the status of trade flows. So that's the first confusion we should avoid. Next slide, please. So here is one definition we like here at IFPRI. It is from OECD. So it is an ABC approach, and uh, it is an exhaustive definition in the sense that it gives us most of the components of IBC, ICBT. So it has three components. So the first component is informal traders that operate entirely outside the formal economy. So 
Here we'll find basically trade in small quantities. The second component is formal firms that trade to avoid actually regulations and duties by avoiding formal official border crossing points. And here we find mainly smuggling activities. And the last component is formal firms that try to evade trade related regulations and duties by resorting to either under invoicing or declassification. So they would switch tariff lines. So that's the, the third component. And also here we'll focus mainly on ICBT, on agricultural products, keeping these three definitions in mind. Next slide, please. So now that we have a definition of ICBT, why do we observe it? There are a lot of determinants, so the list shown here is not exhaustive. So let's start with poverty. What we see is that millions of people rely on ICBT for their livelihoods, particularly women. I think there is a speaker that will talk about that in more details. And uh, actually, this is just a special case. If you look at how the economy works in Africa, you will notice that millions of people rely on informal activities. So ICBT is just a special case of informal activities. So there are no opportunities in the formal sector. So people are engaged in informal activities and ICBT is just a special case of that. And millions of people rely on it. A recent survey by the World Bank in West Africa showed that uh, on average, on average, each informal cross-border traders in Africa has eight dependents actually. So the next determinants are trade policy. So we have import tariffs, export taxes, bans, prohibitions and quotas, all kinds of trade policy measures. And the main impact of all these kinds of measures is to create or to widen an existing gap between world and domestic prices. And this gives an opportunity and incentives to informal cross-border traders. And we have also regulations and standards such as sanitary and phytosanitary measures or technical barriers to trade. So these procedures are also lengthy, costly, and they are seen as cumbersome by traders. So that's why we try to avoid it. We have also the inefficiency of custom procedures. So this is something also we have seen in Africa. You can think of uh, uh, ports, uh, the efficiency of ports and other custom procedures. And lastly, we have historical and cultural determinants. So in many countries in Africa, you will see that we have the same ethnic groups actually on the same on both sides of the border. So you will find the same ethnic groups and this will create trade linkages. Next slide, please. So how do we measure it? So basically we can adopt two strategies. We can use either indirect methods or direct methods. So for indirect methods, we can use mirror flows, meaning that we'll compare declaration from both sides, from importers and from exporters. We can also use an econometric approach, mainly gravity modeling. So this is a kind of normative approach. So we'll define a norm of trade. So we have an economic model, and then we'll predict the trade flows with this model, and we'll compare that with what we observed in the field. We can also use the system of national accounts using production and consumption data and try to retrieve actually net trade. But all these methods have limitations. For mirror flows, you can have bad declaration from both sides or no declaration at all. And uh, the system of national accounts are subject to a lot of measurement errors. So the best way to do it is actually to use direct methods. So these are based on surveys in the field. For that, you need a good coverage actually in space and time 
to avoid missing water points and also to avoid extrapolation issues. If you think of agricultural products, for instance, there is a lot of seasonality that you need to take into account. Next slide, please. Okay, so now in terms of magnitude, uh, it is important to keep in mind that we don't have a continental-wide initiative. Okay, we have only local or regional initiatives, such as the one by SEALS or FUSENET or UBOS. Mr. Cisse will talk about what SEALS is doing in West Africa. So if you see a figure saying that, for instance, ICBT in Africa is 40 or 50% of uh, overall trade flows, we should be careful because these figures are not coming from a direct survey in the field at the continental wide level. Okay, so I'm just going to give you a series of examples, starting with Benin in 2010. So the figures are a bit old, but the pattern of trade flows has not changed that much since then. So as you can see, we have Benin exports uh, to its main neighboring countries. As you can see, in many cases, in three cases, the share of informal exports is more than 40% of total exports. And for Nigeria, it is above 50% actually. So the share is really high. Next slide, please. Here is another example for Uganda. So same pattern, you can see, actually the size depends on the country you are looking at and also the particular year you are interested in. But you can notice that for a lot of cases, the share of informal export is higher than 40% actually. So the same kind of magnitude that we see so in Benin. Next slide, please. So here is another example for West Africa. So the data is collected by SEALS. As I said, Mr. Cisse will tell us in a few minutes how they collect this data. So here we are comparing maize bilateral flows in West Africa in 2016, comparing the type of data SEALS is collecting with official data. Here by official data, we mean the data coming from Comtrade actually. So on the right panel, if you look at the last line, so we have computed the ratio of the figures coming from SEALS and the data coming from Comtrade. As you can see, the ratio ranges from 1.3 for Ghana to 137 for Mali. So there is a huge gap in terms of magnitude between what's going on really in the field and what's coming from official statistics. Next slide, please. So this is not the main topic of the webinar, but uh, I think it will be interesting to say a few words about it. So I'm just going to do that. So with COVID-19, actually what we have seen is that many countries have closed their land borders or their ports and sometimes their airports as well and limited the movement of, of people, but cargo traffic was allowed actually. So, but what we saw in the field is that the main beneficiaries of that was actually large operators, not small scale traders. But in some areas, actually small scale traders managed to aggregate their produce and then to sheet them as a group. So that was a strategy they, they put in place to, to copy with the risk. And we had also a lot of curfews and sanitary controls that cause costly delays. And that's important, particularly if we have what we call in our lingo time sensitive goods. So the type of goods that are fresh and perishable. So if you have this type of good, you may lose part of your shipment actually. And sometimes you need to travel by night to benefit from cooler temperature. And you cannot do that obviously if there is a curfew in force. 
Next slide, please. So this is just a map showing uh, the point of entry border closures and restrictions. As you can see, for most of the countries, we have either a partial closure or a, a full closure, actually. Next slide, please. So in terms of the impact of the pandemic, actually, we have not a clear pattern. We don't have a clear pattern yet. And uh, this is an example coming from the Kenya-Tanzania border. So on the left panel, we have informal trade flows. And on the right panel, we have formal trade flows. What you can notice that is we have a decrease in informal trade flows, while formal trade flows have increased. So it can be the case that uh, we have less monitoring of informal trade flows, or the cost of informal trade flows have increased more than the cost of formal trade flows. So we need actually more evidence, more data to, to, to draw a conclusion from that. Next slide, please. Here is another example in West Africa. Again, the data is coming from Mr. C's team from SEALS. And here, again, we have a significant decrease in exports. So in West Africa, coming from three countries. And uh, here also, we should be careful because, of course, we may have a drop in trade flows. But what we know is that we also had less monitoring. So the quality of the monitoring process has also deteriorated. So it is not easy to disentangle the two phenomena, actually. So let's keep that in mind. Next slide, please. So to wrap up, I will say that uh, ICBT is prominent in Africa, as we have seen. It is a source of income for a lot of people, so particularly for women. It contributes to food security. And uh, monitoring is very important. Why? Because we need that for national account and policy planning. We need good trade data to produce balance of payments, also food balance sheets. Uh, for researchers also, we may be interested in trade agreement, the impact of trade agreement. We have also at the continental level, a lot of initiatives such as the Malabo commitments, so which aims at tripling the intra-African of agricultural commodities, so you need good data to, to monitor the progress towards that target. And we need the complementarity between actions. So for instance, the type of actions you need to retrieve the data from declassification or under invoicing is not the same type of action you need for smuggling or trade in small quantities. So now the consensus is that we should not sanction ICBT, but try to formalize it as much as we can. And that will be my take. So we need actually uh, simplified trade regimes so and trade facilitation measures to do that. And uh, lastly, we need more information to, to, to assess the impact of COVID-19. There are a lot of things we need to disentangle. So let me stop here. I'm running out of time. Over to you, Julie. Thank you so much, Fusini. Uh, you, you laid a really wonderful groundwork that will to, to help uh, dive in deeper with our next speaker. So I will pass it now to Brahim Assis. He is an expert at the Comité Interetat de Lutte contre la Chesserèche au Sahel. Brahima. Can you share the screen? It's sharing, Brahima, you can go ahead. Thank you very much, Julie. I am Brahima Sisse. I work at SILS as an expert of international trade of agri-commodities and transport, as well as transport. 
Ambezi Wagadugu. Next slide, please. Well, um, I'm going to do a presentation in addition to what Fusini have said, but focus on the methodology that we are using in West Africa to, to capture data on informal trade cross-border. We are using the direct methodology by conducting a permanent survey. Our methodology is based on the value chains organizations. It is the value chains organization who have selected the enumerators and those enumerators are, when they select the enumerators, we train the enumerators, with the enumerators, we assess their, their level of understanding, doing the business across the border. We train them. Then we discuss with the, with the value chain organization to select the data collection points where we can capture the maximum of informal trade that is going on in a particular corridors. Currently, we are monitoring more than 19 big corridors across West Africa, covering all the countries, the, 15, the, the, the 14 countries in West Africa, plus Chad and Mauritania. It means that we are now covering 16 countries where we have data collectors, where they are collecting day-to-day -day data on informal cross-border trade. And those data are collecting by using smartphone. We have developed uh, an Android, Android applications. And this application is available on Google Play Store. The enumerators are using their own phone. We are just giving them a, a grant, grant to the, to the, to the value chains organization to, for them to have internet connection that is not easy for them to conduct some uh, uh, supervisions, uh, for them also to be able to have now a virtual discussion among themselves. Then we at the SILS, we don't have uh, per se our collector in the field, like I said. It is a private organization who have the, the enumerators at the field. We are conducting quarterly supervisions on the field to be sure that, that the methodology that we train them is the same methodology that they are using for data collection. Next. As I said, we are ECOWAS as, uh, is uh, 15 countries, but uh, one country that is a, a inland island country that is Verde is not covering by the data collection uh, process. Up today, we have made some progress because we have been collecting data uh, using that methodology now, now almost 10 years, 10 years from 2009 up today. And we, 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 we strongly build the, the methodology. And we share that methodology with the national statistics offices among the 15 countries of ECOWAS. We discuss with the ECOWAS uh, headquarters, namely the statistics directory, 
to show them the importance of uh, the data that we are collecting. Then all the National Statistics Office has uh, assessed the methodology. We have a, a, some uh, a various, less various technical working session for them to understand the methodology. And they have adopted now the methodology and they are using to, they are going to use next year the informal cross-border data in addition to the custom data that they have that is very few for the agri-commodities. Because in the ECOWAS country, as you know, because of the ECOWAS uh, scheme, uh, the ECOWAS uh, like, uh, trade liberalization scheme, agri-commodities are not uh, subject to custom duties at the border. Only for that reason, the custom doesn't record very well. Even if you cross, you pass through the custom offices, they don't record it very well because there are no, there, there are no duties on the agri-commodities. For this internalization in this official statistic, we have built a strong partnership with IFRI. And IFRI is still working on the improvement of the methodology as well on the database that is uh, used to store today the 10 years data. We have with ECOWAS set a technical secretary last year. This technical secretary is now going to be the, the main, let's say the main technical team that is working on the, on the informal cross-border trade. And the technical secretary has been formally recognized by ECOWAS. Next week, we will start working as a team in Lome. We have also built a regional capacity of a regional, very big regional uh, organization on agri-trade. That is uh, WAPTAF, the West Africa cross-border trade uh, on agri and fishery commodities. As I said, IFRI is working on the, on, the, on, the, on the methodology, on the database for 12 corridors uh, through USID and IFAD funding. Also, one of the objective is also to move to move to move to the formalization of the informal trade. Then the WACTAF, that is the regional uh, value chain organization and International Trade Center, Geneva International Trade Center are working on that matter to develop simplified trade regime for small traders to be able to formalize their, their, their trade across border. Next. We have learned uh, some lessons across uh, those uh, most, almost 10 years. We, we, we are confident that uh, we have a, a unique, I think we have a unique uh, methodology of day-to-day -day monitoring system along corridors in West Africa. I think in, uh, in Africa, we don't have the same um, methodology yet. And this methodology give us very, very interesting fig figures that Fushini showed you uh, before. We also learned that the integration of uh, ICBD data in the foreign trade statistic will better measure the regional integrations and uh, it improve the level of uh, 
percentage of interregional trade between West African countries and help more policymakers to, to take to make decisions. For that, we need still need very strong partnership with value chain organizations because they are the they are the they are the hams of uh, this technology. We need them for sustainability because collecting data is costly. And so far, it is the donors that, is, that are funding. We are building capacity of water for them to be able to collect the data by their self, by their own uh, funds, their, by their own capacity. Next. As I said, we have uh, two main funders. USAID was the main funders for almost 10 years, but since June, we don't, we have not yet uh, receiving, uh, we are not receiving fund for grants to support data collection, but we are still, we are negotiating. We are, we have a agreement that is in the pipeline that we hope that by the end of this year, it will be signed to support again, uh, the data collection. And since June, IFAD is supporting that data collection through the Family Farming Regional Markets and Cross-Border Trade Corridor Project in the Sahel. Namely, uh, that acronym was, is uh, FarmTrack. Next. Thank you very much for your attention. I think I'll, I'll, I've done in the time. Thank you very much, Brahima. Um, I will pass it now to our next speaker who will share more about some of the, the gender implications of informal trade. Um, Nadia Hasham is a trade policy expert at the African Trade Policy Center at the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa. Nadia. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Julian. Thanks, uh, Ifri, for inviting me to, uh, to this panel of uh, very interesting speakers um so i you know i'll speak a little bit to the to the gender dimension um, a little bit less data heavy but the implications of some of this research uh for for women so uh next um so we we already you know understand that uh informal cross-border trade plays an important role in food security um and that uh, you know um this is also often not accounted for in informal in, in statistics. Um, in terms of the labor force, women represent um, about 50% of the agricultural labor force along the value chain um, in various capacities of the value chain. Um, and we also know that uh, women comprise, can comprise up to 70% of informal and formal cross-border traders on the African continent, it varies uh, by location, but this is quite a significant proportion. Um, we also know that the the labor that women tend to be um, employed in in agriculture is often temporary or seasonal as small scale producers, um, often dominating the local re retail markets in horticulture. Um, and, and that increased demand for specialized foods is providing some opportunities for women uh, to move to higher value 
processing and, and packaging types of jobs in the value chain. So there are opportunities as well. But we know that the inequalities that women face and also that you know there's an age dimension here as well too. So some, some that youth face uh, lead to reduced output and, and, and inefficiencies in trade at the end of the day um, and dis impacts of uh, trade that are not equally distributed. So these can be uh, access to, to, to inputs. It can be you know, land rights, access to finance. Um, access to markets, information, uh, network skill standards, you know, all of these areas. Um, and, uh, you know, women in, in different estimates, set, it shows that women own uh, 20 to 70% less than men in terms of land size. So it's, it can be quite significant. Um, and uh, but but you know this has implications as we already said for food security for food prices as well as we have seen during the COVID um, crisis too and uh, and ultimately for poverty. Next. Um, so uh, we've also looked uh, with Afro Exim Bank at how to measure informal cross border trade. Now this this project that ECA has done jointly with Afro Exim Bank along the Abidjan Lagos corridor is not limited to agricultural commodities, uh, but looks at informal cross border trade as a whole. Uh, but I think it's important in in the sense that it raises some of those constraints um, that uh, other speakers have spoken about, but we can focus on the gender dimension of some of them. So uh, we've, we see that female traders carry out 61% of informal cross-border trade along this corridor from our estimates. Um, some of the challenges that have come out, I mean, this, this um, assessment was done through border observation, through tracking movement of large vehicles, and through stock taking at open markets where there were. Um, we've, I've already mentioned inequalities in, in access to finance, capital, land rights, and, and labor, technology, you know, business networks, uh, market access, access to information, the digital divide, all of these impact on the production side. But at the border, some of the things that we've seen were uh, limited knowledge of trade regulations and policies, uh, you know, sexual harassment, corruption and extortion. Um, again, the access to finance issue, which, which does, uh, does also um, have implications for transport and logistics, um, and then inadequate infrastructure. So, um, for instance, um, you know some of some of the things that we found were uh, that I mean the other thing to add by the way to this is the additional domestic responsibilities that women have at home uh, and having to balance that with participation in 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 these markets, uh, which has implications for getting getting goods to market. Um, but you know, um, Fosini mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, knowledge of, of some SPS measures, phytosanitary and sanitary measures. Um, you know, so often, for example, milk doesn't, uh, doesn't, you know, go through the same kind of sterilization, cooling and packaging processes through informal channels as otherwise. And, and if we think that some of these channels are dominated by women, we need to look at the gender dimension of uh, any um, policies that we put in place to now address those challenges. Next. Um, so some of the vulnerabilities, I mean, uh, you know, we, we've touched on them already, but um, the gender inequalities here 
again, have implications for the policies that we put in. So I want to just uh, just raise them in, in the context of border disruptions and not just for COVID, but border disruptions broadly, which can be due to closures, conflict, it can be due to violent conflict, um, you know, and, and this is, you know, women often are participating in this, have a daily reliance, it's, they rely on it on daily income. Uh, so you think about, um, you know, uh, the, the need to earn um, a regular income for sustenance. If there's a border closure one day, it, it you know, impacts your ability to earn for that day. And, and that has significant impacts on poverty, on, on potential debt that has been taken on. Um, it could lead to food spoilage uh, that we talked about, um, especially with lack of storage facilities. So the importance of trade facilitation is critically important to be able to try to address some of these issues. And I'll, and I'll talk a little bit about some of the solutions we've seen there. Um, at the same time, we've seen also digital solutions that try to help facilitate cross-border payments or access to finance. And here also we have to consider the gender dimension where there might be inequalities in digital literacy, in access to phones and internet. Uh, so um, again, just to consider the cross-border payments aspect of it as well that has does have a gender dimension. Next. Um, so now we've said already that the inequalities um, hinder export performance as well of countries um, in agricultural economies, especially where smallholder producers are prominent. We've found, for example, during the COVID period in some of the research we've done that, um, that you know, decreases in, in global demands for coffee, tea, and flowers hit smallholder farmers and also large growers, um, but there are major job losses um, and impacts on households. Um, and similarly, the, the downturns in, in the garment and textiles industry due to lockdowns and, and shop closures had a, have a knock-on effect on cotton prices for farmers. So, um, you know, and women are, are more likely to experience job losses due to employment in um, vulnerable jobs, which is low job security and low bargaining power. So I just want to give the full view of the value chain. Um, it's not just, you know, at the border that, that the disruption happens, it happens across uh, the entire agricultural value chain um, as the commodities are, are through. So we do need to consider, um, you know, this in both regional trade policy and national trade policy. Next, please. So some of the, the opportunities that we've seen, we've seen some innovations in trade facilitation, uh, one-stop border posts, we talked about simplified trade regimes. Interestingly, we've uh, found that simplified trade regimes do tend to benefit women, but not particularly because they're designed to, but they do by, by default. Um, so imagine what they could do if they were designed um, in a gender sensitive way. We've seen also uh, digital solutions along the corridors uh, that we've mentioned as well for transport and logistics. Um, some of the regional policies that have come in for border to alleviate border disruptions, for example, the African Union continental guidelines uh, to facilitate trade during COVID-19 have a gender section and also have gender mainstream throughout the document gender considerations. We've seen private sector innovations, as we've, as, as Fosini has said, about aggregating small-scale traders, aggregating goods um, to cross the border because movement of people is not allowed, but movement of, of trucks is. Um, some export processing zones have shown uh, as well to support uh, better wages for women 
but uh, um, and and this is also something that we uh, expect with the AFCFTA modeling uh, shows um, potential for increases in low skilled uh, labor, uh, which which women tend to occupy. So that could be also an opportunity. And um, at the end of the day, again, formal formal measurement, and we've talked about measurement already of, of informal cross-border trade next. So in terms of what can the, the Africa continental free trade area do, this is where uh, I see a big opportunity here, uh, particularly new opportunities for women in agribusiness. You know, we expect through our modeling that the exports of agriculture and food products um, will in some areas will increase in excess of 25%, including meat, sugar, milk, and dairy products. Um, and, you know, we expect, as I said, labor intensive industries, those, those skilled wages to benefit. Um, so, and, and the agreement also has a mechanism for addressing non-tariff barriers um, for reporting on them and addressing them, though this, this can be strengthened. Next. So what can we do now uh, with the Africa continental free trade area to, to support women in this sector? We can engage uh, stakeholders in inclusive implementation. This means we need to consult women, uh, women businesses, women professional associations, uh, gender ministries uh, to participate in um, development of national AFCFTA implementation strategies to participate in the implementation committees to design policies that are inclusive um, to support the implementation of the, the continental free trade area. It means that we need to think about uh, training and capacity building opportunities on women's organizations on how to leverage the benefits of trade agreements and advocate for these inclusive policies. Um, we also think we should be building linkages between larger, uh, larger and smaller players um, that can support, again, along the value chain and seek opportunities for, for women's participation in higher value uh, activities, higher value commodities and products for the Africa market through inter-African trade. And this could be uh, some areas that we've identified through the modeling of the Africa continental free trade area are tea textiles and cotton for textiles um, and palm oil, uh, but then also niche uh, export markets that have uh, high returns. So for example, organic cotton. Uh, next. And finally, um, we also, we've talked about the importance of data. So I just wanted to mention as well, the importance of national and regional capacities to collect this data. Uh, for this is critical for evidence-based decision making, and so we see it. It's current. It's you know definitely a struggle, but we have opportunities here to assess uh, the capacities and to be able to to support this uh, at the national and uh, regional levels. Uh, so I'll I'll stop there. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, Nadia. Um, thank you to all our speakers for really engaging presentations. And um, now we enter the, the, the wonderful fun part um, of question and answers. So I want to encourage all of our audience again um, to put your questions on the website. You can enter them directly there. You can also um, ask them on Twitter using the hashtag AskIfPre. So uh, to, to, you can also do, sorry, on Facebook and LinkedIn, same thing. You can use that same hashtag. So uh, please uh, send those questions in. I, I would like to um, 
to uh, kick things off with a, with a question about nutrition and food security. So um, for Fusini, could you um, address the information on, um, on trade flows? Um, is this something that can help improve national food balance sheets? Um, could you talk a little bit more about where, what, what is the connection between what we formally understand as, as food balance sheets? Is that just dependent on ComTrade data currently? And how does, how does this um, incorporating the informal trade data better into the, those data systems? What are the opportunities for food security understanding? Yes, thank you, Julie. Uh, yes, it is very important. Actually, the reason it is important for food balance sheet is the same reason it is important for balance of payments. So we need good, actually, data, good um, documents that can help in policy planning. So if you want to build your balance of payment, you want to have an accurate idea of your current account balance. So how much foreign savings you are going to save, etc. So you need good trade data. So for food balance sheet, it is the same story. So you have a supply side and a demand side for food balance sheet. So on the supply side, we have production and imports. And on the demand side, so you have uses, consumptions, uh, export, uh, seeds, overuses, investment stocks, etc. So if you want to have an accurate idea of what is available, what you are consuming what is needed, what you need to import and what you are really exporting. So you need good trade data. So that's why we need it for food balance sheets. So you may also need it because you want to do it at the regional level, okay, to have a consolidated figure. So you may build your own country food balance sheet, but it is better to do it at the regional level to have consistencies uh, between data sets. So you can use a model to do that. So with Antoine, we are working on a, a, a similar project. So because the food balance sheet gives you an accurate idea of what you need, what you export. Okay, so that's why you need really good data, both on the supply side for imports and on the demand side for export. And uh, regarding the nutrition side also, because you, you need to monitor that um, uh, closely because of food safety issue. So, but that's another, that's another issue. Thank you for seeing me. Thank you. Um, uh, I'm sending a question here for Brahim uh, from M. Amy Ostrander from Chemonics. Um, about, uh, can you direct us to papers or a website where some of this data on, on cross-border trade is shared? And then Fusini, feel free. I know you're working across different uh, platforms, not just from SILS. Um, to jump in there afterwards. Where is this data publicly available um, for, for others to use? Brahim? Thank you very much, Julie. On the website, what we have in terms of uh, data is the, all the cross-border trade value and volume for almost 70 commodities, agri-commodities. We have, not yet, we have not yet started collecting data on no agri-commodities, but by next year, it will be included in the same platform because that platform is for ECOWAS uh, and SILS is and the private organization that contribute in collecting data. We have the value, we have the volume of agri-commodities, informal agri-commodities that is moving across borders. And everybody can download the data 
it is free data because uh, it is the public uh, resources that we use to collect the data. And the national statistics offices are also downloading the data. Thank you. Wonderful, thank you, Rahim. Fusini, is there anything you'd like to add about um, some of the other platforms, the other agencies that are collecting informal trade data? So actually, FuseNet is also doing a similar work in Eastern and Southern Africa. You can also download some data there. But let me say that what's really important with the SILS methodology is that, uh, if you remember during my presentation, I talked about the extrapolation issue. Because in many cases, you rely on a two-week survey and then you need to extrapolate the data. But if you think of agricultural products, so that can be an issue because we have seasonality, for instance. So they are actually collecting the data on a daily basis. So there is no need to extrapolate, okay, over time. You may think of extrapolating over space, but you don't need to extrapolate over time. So that's a really good advantage of, of, of SIDS data. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, Nadia, a question for you. Um, um, when it comes to uh, the, the harassment that, that women often faces, face at the borders, um, is there a, a large variety from your understanding um, a variation in, in whether that's harassment or corruption or extortion um, in, and the intensity of that when from one African country border or different borders to another? Um, and does ethnicity or tribe or, or social class uh, for women play into the level of, of, of harassment or extortion that, that women can experience at borders? Thanks, that's an interesting question. Um, I think I'll, I'll answer it just with anecdotal evidence. I don't know if I feel confident enough to make a conclusive um, a conclusive uh, statement on that. But, you know, um, Fusini and Brahima um, did mention as well the, um, the, the fact that even across borders, there are commonalities uh, between uh, ethnic groups and, and cultural identities. So, um, so sometimes, sometimes that, can, that can help, but we do see differences regionally or by country, sometimes in, in how women are treated um, and, and the level of, you know, um, potentially understanding of the process, depending how complicated and complex it is at a given border, depending on the, the free trade agreements uh, and, and the documentation required that's in place at the border, on the level of formalization of women, uh, women operating in business that are crossing the border. So all of those things have, um, have a role to play. Um, at the same time, you know, Certainly, when, uh, women crossing the border who have less knowledge of the trade policies. I mean, that's really the risk, a risk area. So I think the, there are some things that have been done to try to address that with trade information desks. There's the Great Lakes uh, Trade Facilitation Project that that has trade information desks, or you know, gender desks at police stations at the border, uh, female gender champions. Um, training, better training for customs and border officials uh, to understand how to how to um, deal with with women crossing. Um, then there are safety and security issues uh, quite apart from that. 
And some of the things that, that have been uh, implemented there are solar panel lighting, as Fusini said, they, people do like to cross, you know, at different hours, um, sex differentiated toilets that, that can provide some level of security as well. Um, so there, there are some things that have been done, again, anecdotally, it varies. I mean, I've even heard anecdotally, uh, you know, some men, in fact, complain that women are treated better at the border because they're women. So I think it depends, <laughs> it depends who you ask. Um, it, but uh, certainly, I think uh, knowledge is power uh, on this one. Thank you so much, Nadia. Um, this is a question in, uh, from Jenny, Jenna Perry um, with ASA WISH, I think that's the, the World Initiative, the Soy Initiative, um, about have you found a correlation between a country's protectionist measures and informal cross-border trade? Um, so we mentioned that Nigeria recently shutting borders for poultry imports. Do you, do you see a correlation there? Uh, Fusini, could you address that question? Yes, sure. We, we did see a correlation and uh, we published a lot of papers about that. Uh, we have also some colleagues at CEPI in France. CEPI is Centre d'études Prospective and Information International. So our colleagues, uh, Joachim Giaro, Christina Mitalitona and uh, Sami Bensassi, they published a nice paper to highlight that. So it is not just closing borders or imposing bans, even the tariff differential between Nigeria and its neighbors before the CET, ECOWAS CET is put in place was a main determinant actually of cross-border trade flows. So yes, it is the case. Thank you, Fusini. Um, uh, uh, a question here for um, both Brahima and I would like to pass it to Nadia as well. Julie Howard from um, CISIS asked, would you provide more detail on the simplified trade regime? Also, is the cross-border trade data that you are collecting uh, sex disaggregated? So Brahim, I'll pass to you first. Yes, the data, the data that we are collecting is can be disaggregated by sex because uh, in the methodology, for each raw data, we know what person is doing the business, what person is doing the transaction, what person is crossing the border. And that person is recorded in the database with some details. Among those details, we have the, the gender of that, uh, that person. It means that uh, because in the database, we have so many relations that we can use to the disaggregate the data or the analysis by gender. No problem for that one. And Brahima, in terms of the, the simplified trade uh, regime, you can feel free to pass that to Nadia too, but can you say a little bit more about that and why it's beneficial for traders? Yeah, for the simplified regime, simplified regime trade, we are just starting with the support of International Trade Center. We are going to start the process uh, gradually. Currently, we are working on the border between Niger and Federal Republic of Nigeria. It is not that something that we are currently doing. We are just start the process and we just start working with the customs, with the Chamber of Commerce, with the Minister of Trade, 
and with the traders. It's just, uh, we are just starting. Thank you, Brahim. Nadia, could you also comment on that? And I'm not sure, just based on what Brahim said, is, is the simplified uh, trade regime, is it, is it really a, a regional uh, regime that, that varies you know, from border to border? Uh, or, or is there coordination on the simplified trade regime across various borders and in, in regions? Yeah, that, this is a, an interesting question. So the simplified trade regimes that we've been able to look at so far in terms of implementation are implemented by uh, COMESA and, and EAC. So the East African and kind of Southern, that that sort of area. And um, th those, uh, those have shown promise so, uh, you know, they, again, from the gender dimension, didn't go in des designed to support women, but ultimately did, did sort of work out to support women. And under these regimes, customs officials can, issued, uh, can issue simplified uh, certificates of origin, simplified custom documents to traders uh, that trade goods on a common list um, and under a certain value. Um, and so the, there's the... The constraints on those have been, again, a lack of awareness and, and understanding among traders on how to use them and how to leverage them. But ultimately, with that understanding, you you know, it does incentivize formalization, which means the the more that we can support, um, you know, or at least incentivizes, you know, uh, is it, it gets us data as well. It incentivizes better security for for informal cross border traders that they can trade at formal border crossings. There's a way for them to do that, um, and and they can participate in benefits of things like free trade area agreements or, or other regional agreements. Um, you know, so so I think it, there there have been discussions about, uh, you know. Uh, simplified trade regimes in other areas uh, across the continent. There's also been some talk about a continental simplified trade regime. If, if that were to come about in the future, um, that, you know, that could be also very promising. But, uh, it, you know, we have seen that that um, differences, as, as you're saying, in terms of uptake uh, by by region. So uh, it'd be interesting to see, you know, how that how that turns out in the next couple of years. But uh, again, very, very promising uh, on terms of supporting trade facilitation. Um, and maybe also just to mention on the port, the point on, on data, um, our data as well is, is sex disaggregated, uh, but this does not necessarily imply that we are looking at the gender dimension of the issues. It's great that we are we collect it now, which is which is uh, you know uh, definitely a, a league ahead of of where we might have been if we hadn't. Uh, but then we also need to look at at analyzing that data from from uh, various perspectives of not only gender but you know all sorts of other demographics. Great. Thank you, Nadia. I would like... Yes, go yes. ahead, Fusini. Yes, I would just like to comment briefly on what Nadia said. I think uh, her colleagues and uh, herself, I think they work a lot on, on this uh, topic. So I just wanted to, to mention that one thing which is important in those simplified trade regimes is the common list of products you may be able to, to trade duty-free. So it is very important to, to have a common list, I think, which is negotiated at the regional level, at the rec level, instead of doing it bilaterally. So it seems that in Comesa, they did it bilaterally, while in the EAC, it was negotiated at the, at the rec level. Because if you do it bilaterally, so each pair of countries, they will negotiate between themselves. But if you have a 
commodity coming from a third country, but which is part of a REC, but not in your bilateral negotiation. So a small scale trader will face the same type of issue than before. So that's something I think we, we, we should keep in mind, maybe in the West Africa region, when we start to, to introduce those simplified trade regimes. And, and then I guess just to follow that up, could you mention it, 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 if um, if the, the Africa Free Trade, Continental Free Trade Agreement um, starts opening trade broader between the different regional economic communities, uh, do you, will those duty-free arrangements, do you see that as, as dr dramatically impacting the informal trade as well? Uh, actually, in a sense, yes, because anything that will reduce trade cost or reduce price differentials between domestic and world prices. So is lowering the incentives to do informal cross-border trade actually. Okay, so, but we'll not start to open all borders. As you know, in the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, we have some sensitive products that are going to be liberalized at a later stage. We have some products that are going to be excluded so maybe those kind of products will be the ones for which we have a lot of informal cross-border trades and we'll have also NTMs and TBs. So it is just the beginning of the process. But in general, anything that will lower this gap between domestic and world prices will lower the incentives to do ICBT, but there is a lot to be done. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I have a question that is, is about advice, which is lovely. So Carolyn Anderson, Pahan from the Agribusiness at Agricolleges International in Malawi, um, said that she is working with women in, um, who represent uh, fruit and vegetable selling and do a lot of cross-border trading. Um, so she is researching ways to start a co-op style clusters for market export. Um, and the goal is to provide an international market where female traders can um, can use their sell their produce and increase the exported volume collectively um, and so she's she's looking for advice so and i had a similar question just about um how that relates to some of the small scale traders that Husini, you mentioned have been coordinating shipping uh by by aggregating goods so um i'll pass it to nadia first and then if you'd like to add anything well, I mean, I think I probably have the same point, which is which is that you know uh, the aggregation of goods um, is one critical way, and you know while while there have been challenges with figuring out how to do that before, or with incentives for doing it, um, this recent crisis or border disruptions generally have uh, have created the right incentives, I suppose, for for traders to to be able to aggregate. Uh, goods. The the continental guidelines um, that the AU uh, have worked on uh, with with some support from us um, that are trying to look at trade facilitation during during COVID, um, but you know have implications for for broader border disruptions. Um, do try to look at some ways to encourage um, easier easier uh, you know processing. Um, at the border. So I think that we do now, you know, in, in trying to trying to build forward, we can look at some of the successes that have come out of this period or some of the 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 ways that um, that that the traders have have been able to respond and be agile. Um, I would say that my advice um, is to look at the cross-border trader associations um, because really when we have to start looking at uh, 
groups and associations of traders individually you know they don't have uh, enough enough weight them you know individually to be able to move any of these but collectively they have quite a bit of impact on food security on prices um you know on, on all sorts of uh, dynamics uh, in border communities let alone across the agricultural value chain as a whole so um i think you know looking at at the at the cross border trader associations i think is a great place to start being able to capacitate them um but also work with them they're very innovative uh, to to figure out how to how to um kind of expand expand uh, these types of initiatives Thank you. Thank you, Nadia. Christine, uh, do you have any comments or advice to add to that? No, I fully agree. I fully agree with that. And uh, in West Africa, we are uh, actually um, it's such an association. It seems that it's not the case in all the regions in Africa. So maybe they have something to learn uh, from what's going on in, in West Africa under WACTAF. Mr. Sise can maybe say something about it. So. It, it should go through uh, associations of cross-border traders. Yes, that's the that's the right scale. Great, thank you. And Carolyn, we we wish you well um, in your efforts. And um, I I want to ask some some questions. And uh, Kenny Davies from CLUA had asked a question about food security being impacted um, from the disruptions of COVID, um, and she mentioned that. You know, Ghana may be unable to import maize seeds from South Africa. Um, so, if you could say, speak to something about about the food insecurity impacts of this, um, and and maybe how those impacts are different um, with informal trade, whether regard regarding imports of food or or, or livelihoods directly. Pusinia, um, I'll I'll keep it with you for now. Yes, actually, we we have mixed we have mixed figures. For instance, for some countries, we didn't see uh, a lot of impact. Whilst in some countries, we we did see an impact. So the issue is that what we have here is actually a supply disruption. Actually, we don't have a, a demand disruption because we do not have um, a, a full lockdown. But people who rely on ICBT have uh, seen their activities decrease. So this is a kind of small income shock. But at the aggregate level, we haven't seen a huge fall in demand for foods. So the shock is coming mainly from the supply side, actually. So the, the, the main impact has been a disruption in supply and uh, an increase in prices in some areas, particularly in East Africa. So there are some uh, UNECA studies that, that show that in, uh, in East Africa, in Kenya, for instance. So the price of some basic foods have increased actually a lot, and uh, that's causing uh, an impact in terms of food security. So that's the last thing we need during that this crisis. So another food crisis. So that's why we are saying that we should not close fully borders, but we should let them open, but with, uh, of course, the, the required sanitary measures so that to avoid uh, a huge increase in prices. So, but in West Africa, so the impact has been actually actually mixed for some countries, for instance, for Burkina, we haven't seen uh, an impact. So, but it is a supply shock and the main channel will be a supply disruption and an increase in, in, in prices. So let's keep our borders partially open with sanitary measures to avoid uh, supply disruption and, and the increase in prices. Thank you, Vosini. 
Um, I'd like to squeeze in one last question here before I pass it to Anton to close things off. So I want to ask about um, some of the efforts to better coordinate the different regional measurements. So there's a question about um, the, the farm track initiative at a continental level. Um, so uh, Nadia, if you can mention anything and please follow that up. Um, what if, what, what efforts are already being made and, and how, what are the limitations to coordinating these, these informal trade measuring systems across the continent? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I think I think we have to balance um, the need for a harmonized understanding of what we're measuring um, and methodology with uh, the realities at the regional level and at the local levels. So that's always going to be ultimately the challenge. Um, on top of that, what I mentioned before, the the capacities for actually collecting this data. So I think the, the first thing is uh, this common understanding of you know, the methodology to be used, well, what are we targeting? I mean, you know, I mean, I think Fusini mentioned it before about the, the, or Brahima as well, about the different view of what are we tracking? Are we tracking people? Are we tracking you know, the goods that they're trading? Um, so I think we, you know, we need to we need to have a common understanding of some of that. We, you know, agreement on the methodology I think has to be convened in some way um, if we want to have that that harmonized level. But again, the realities are different at at the regional level and at the local levels. And you know, how much do we want to be prescriptive and and hard handed, heavy handed about this? So at the same time. We have to look at the regional capacities at the rec level, the regional economic community level, as well as the national capacities to actually collect this data. And uh, you know, it's on informal trade. So how do you make it part of the formal system? Um, and then even a step further, the capacities to then use the data and create you know, statistics out of it and, and be able to apply it for evidence-based policy design. So I think you know, there's there's quite a few steps. We are working on some of those areas. So, for instance, we are looking at you know, methodologies for using uh, for for uh, gender statistics, for instance, um, out of out of formal and informal trade data. Some countries have done it. For example, Uganda does track informal trade. Um, you know, in as part of uh, as part of official in in some official capacity. So, I think we have to be flexible enough to the rea local realities, but you know, try to still maintain the rigor of a of a consistency in in methodology. So I don't have an answer. I'm I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> but maybe maybe Vasini has one. Well, no, you you touched on a lot of the complications of doing that. So thank you, Vasini. Uh, anything to add to Nadia's uh, very thorough response? It's okay. <laughs> no, she she cleans. She covers it all. Thank you so much. Well. Um, I'd like to, to close with that. We are, we're very fortunate to have Anton Bue, who is a, a senior research fellow at IFPRI and has been um, uh, researching the field of informal trade um, on the African continent for many, many years. So, Anton, I'll pass it to you to close us out. Thank you very much, Julie. Uh, I would like to thank the, the three experts, uh, Fuseni, Brahima, and Nadia, for their presentation. I think that uh, we've had a, a very rich and informative uh, webinar on a subject that is uh, really interesting and that is in, uh, very important. Uh, and we learned a lot about uh, the methodological difficulties in assessing agricultural trade. 
uh, about the emergence of initiatives to overcome these difficulties, uh, but also the permanent discrimination that African women involved in this type of trade face. Uh, and it's really important to, uh, to be informed of that. Uh, I would also like to thank Patterson Brown for uh, his intervention, uh, but also for the large and long-term uh, support of USAID for the ISPRI SEALS work on agricultural trade, and in particular on informal trade. Uh, but we still have a lot to learn, uh, first about informal trade across the whole African continent, not only West Africa, but also for all African regions. Uh, secondly, about how formal and informal trade had responded to the current situation related to the COVID-19 pandemic. And thirdly, to improve the situations of formal of female informal traders. Um, another important point, I think, is that we need recent, recent trade data. Today, we only have official trade data for 2018. Uh, this is not good. We must have more recent data, and this is important in times of pandemics, uh, like now, because we need to understand what is happening now on the ground. It is also important to uh, design food balance sheets, not for the past years, but uh, for today. And uh, it's important also to try to predict food balance sheets for the coming months, uh, I strongly believe that uh, the initiative uh, launched by SEALS and which is continued by FarmTrack can contribute to this. So thank you all. Uh, I wish you all the best for the rest of the day and take care. Thank you so much, Anton, and I want to thank all of our speakers. Uh, Brahima had to had needed to leave a little bit early, so I'm sorry about questions that were asked and that were that weren't able to be directed to him. Um, and and on for all the questions that were asked, we had really rich questions from our audience, and we were not able to get to all of them. But thank you for your very active participation. Thank you to Fusini, Brahima, Pat Patterson for introducing us, Nadia, and. Um, to all the voices. Uh, just a reminder that um, IFRI has a couple events coming up on our related topics. Uh, December 8th, we will uh, be discussing how the WTO can um, support recovery and resilience in Africa. And then we will be talking about the African um, Continental Free Trade Agreement on, on December 15th. So please tune into those events. And thank you everyone who participated with us today. Take care. <laughs>